I was very late. Now, that in itself is not a terribly um, surprising statement. Those of you who know me know that I'm generally very late to lots of things. But I was um, later than I normally am uh, on the other Wednesday for Little Souls. I have this um, ridiculous thing on a Wednesday morning where I um, head up for um, two things up at the Blue School and then zip down the road and then come to Little Souls and do some singing in different places. And I got stuck um, on the road here, on Newry Road, uh, the wrong side of uh, an enormous cement uh, lorry that was pouring um, huge quantities of cement to create the foundations for a, um, a house extension here on the corner of Newry Road. And I don't know whether you've, you've um, gone through the trauma for yourself or watched other people go through the trauma of doing a big house extension. Um, because if you have, you'll see or you'll know from first-hand experience the amount of time and effort and focus that goes on um, before there are ever any bricks laid. It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, there's all the sort of ground preparations and they dig this trench and uh, somebody has to, a building inspector has to come around and inspect the foundations because get the foundations wrong, and one or two people have experienced that, and it doesn't matter how wonderful your brickwork, the whole thing will begin to crack and move and crumble. You have to get your foundations right or else it doesn't really matter what you build on it, it will always be slightly um, out of place or very um, out of place. And it seems to me that that is precisely exactly the problem that most of us, myself included, have when we come to the next bit of Matthew's Gospel that we're going to look at together. Over these few Sundays, what we've been doing together um, is trying to look ahead, if you like, trying to sort of get a head start on Easter. The problem is that when we hit Holy Week itself, A, it's over so quickly, and B, it's so full of the big set-piece services, whether that's Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, or Easter Sunday, that taking the time to be able to step back and think, what's actually going on here? What happens for Jesus and by Jesus in between what we call Palm Sunday and what we call Easter Sunday? There just simply isn't the time or space for it. So we tried to sort of stand back a few weeks ahead of time and to look at particularly what Matthew says happens on Palm Sunday and in, uh, in those few intervening days. Last week, um, Callum was helping us to think about what we now call the Last Supper, the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his friends. And now we come to what happens immediately after that meal, that same evening, as Jesus and his friends sing a hymn and then go out into the darkness, uh, and they head up towards the the, the Mount of Olives, uh, one of Jesus' favorite places, and uh, still today a place that you can go and uh, Uh, He leaves many of the disciples there on the sort of edge of the olive grove and then just takes a few of his closest companions in with him in order to go and pray. And we have this uh, incident that happens in Gethsemane, um, which variously gets preached or done in children's groups as an encouragement for us to not be like the disciples, is generally how it gets preached. Don't be like the disciples, don't fall asleep, do pray constantly. Now, whereas that's entirely true and very important, and we don't want to, I mean, you're probably all sitting there thinking an extra hour of sleep would be lovely, I wish you hadn't mentioned that word. Um, But it's not wrong to say prayer's important, spend time with Jesus. That's not at all the heart of why Matthew records this instance. Matthew isn't terribly interested at this point in the narrative of Jesus' life uh, to make us feel more guilty about being not very good followers of Jesus. His focus is is laser-like in its precision on the person of Jesus and why it is that this particular man is dying. What it is that this particular man is doing in dying 
and how it is that you and I might have any interest whatsoever in the death of this particular man. That's what's going on here. That's the heart of what goes on in Gethsemane. The problem is that our understanding of of what Jesus is about to do on the cross is built on such shaky foundations that when you read the stories we're about to in a few seconds' time, on the face of it, it makes no sense at all. And the only reason that you and I are capable of reading it without going, this is really weird, is because we've heard it too many times before. When you start to compare what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane with the actions and attitudes and words of countless martyrs down over thousands of years, this makes no sense. So, let me read it for us. Um, It's uh, page 997, and it's Matthew chapter 26, if you're following in another Bible. Um, And it begins at verse 36. It's simply entitled... Gethsemane. So we've had um, what we call the Last Supper. Uh, the previous page on verse 30, it says they'd sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus then predicts Peter's denial. Peter, of course, denies that he's going to deny Jesus. And then we get to verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. What we simply mustn't miss is the sheer horror of what Jesus goes through. Where the NIV translates in verse 37, those pair of words, sorrowful, and troubled, it flattens it out horribly. Troubled is actually a word for being horrified, being overwhelmed with horror. Something happens in Jesus as he begins to walk to the place where he's going to pray, maybe as he begins to pray, because he's always with his heavenly father, there is something that happens that weighs him down with sorrow that begins to almost crush him with a sense of horror and awfulness. Then verse 39, he goes a little further. Well, actually, uh, verse 38, before that, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Please don't miss the weight of those words. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says, it feels like it's killing me. This This is huge, what he's experiencing here. This is not simply, he's scared of dying. 
something is happening here that overwhelms him to the point of death. He, uh, one of the other gospel writers, reports that when he comes back to his disciples, he's drenched in sweat, and in fact, his sweat is mingled with blood. It, it medically, um, reasonably well-known condition of when somebody is in deep shock and horror, that sweat can actually be mingled with, uh, with blood. It is a horrible uh, sign of a physical, physiological, emotional terror and being overwhelmed. Now, why do I emphasize that? Partly because we miss it, because this is so familiar. And partly because of this incredible contrast with many thousands, tens of thousands of martyrs. Uh, uh, Martyrs for all sorts of causes, I hasten to add, Christian and of other faith and of no faith at all, who go to their deaths, sometimes terrible deaths, very confidently. Uh, To go back about five, six hundred years, Latimer and Ridley, two great Christian martyrs, who were burned at the stake um, in Oxford. Um, and the quote that is um, often trotted out, but it needs to be heard, um, is Latimer turns to Ridley just as, about, as the fire is about to be placed at the pyre underneath him, and he says, um, cheer up and play the man. We are about to light a candle in England that will never be put out. And, and you think, well... Okay, they were made of sterner stuff maybe five or six hundred years ago, and, 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 and wow, you know, what incredible sort of fortitude in the, in the face of, of death. But, but hang on, here's Jesus. Here is Jesus who we think of rightly as, as a, a man of strength and of courage and of integrity and of, of a the most remarkable human being, the most fully human human being to have ever lived, and he cannot cope with the, with the death to come. It doesn't make sense, does it? It shouldn't make sense to us. We should be sitting here going, why is Jesus so overwhelmed? Why is Jesus so afraid? It's because, or at least our confusion is because, we've built our understanding of what Jesus does on the cross on cracked, shaky foundations. We misunderstand why Jesus feels like that because we misunderstand what it is he is about to suffer. And we misunderstand what he's about to suffer because we misunderstand, and are actually rather terrified of, this little phrase in the Bible that is called the wrath of God. And we misunderstand God's anger because we misunderstand the nature of of human sin. Layer upon layer upon layer of misunderstanding. And I'm not telling you all the world that I've got it right, but I want at least to try and say, well, is there a different way? Is there a more biblical way of understanding those layers of what it means to talk about our sin, of therefore what God's wrath looks like and why it is that God might be wrathful and therefore what it is Jesus is about to suffer on the cross? And therefore, why it is that, of course, he would feel this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we could spend hours on this, and we're not. Where I want to take you, just for ten minutes or so, is I want to take us right back, just for a few moments of those ten minutes, back to the very beginning of the Bible. I want to take us back to the first two or three chapters, the first three or four chapters, in fact, to those foundational um, moments that help us to understand the heart of the human problem, 
and God's response to it. Because that then helps us to understand what Easter is all about. Would you turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3? I know I've hinted at this already, but I really must say this explicitly. Look, all I'm going to be able to do is touch on three or four key things that we need to think about. I, I hope at least it will stir the pot. I'm not for in, by any means thinking that in 10 or 12 minutes um, I can do the full theological works on sin, wrath, um, and atonement. What we're simply going to do is try and stir things up enough so that we think maybe there's more to this than we thought. Maybe there's more to what Jesus did on the cross than simply suffering a terrible death. I must say, actually, in passing, that one of uh, it doesn't help that you get films like one of my least favourite films of all time. I'm sorry if you love it, and you're allowed to. Films are like that. Um, uh, 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 Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. Now, I've only been able to watch clips of it because I can't stomach it. It's such a gore fest. Um, but actually, Mel Gibson had this big bee in his bonnet that, that the films of Jesus didn't portray the awfulness of what Jesus went through on the cross enough. And so it is just drenched in, in blood and horror and physical torment. The problem is that that then reinforces our confusion that, well, other people have gone through terrible deaths. Why couldn't Jesus deal with it? Which reinforces our sense of, well, God's wrath is about smiting people and doing terrible things to them which reinforces our misunderstanding of what sin is. And then the whole thing gets reinforced again. So we're going to go back to basics. We're going to go right back to the beginning and understand what it is that sin looks like. Here's the thing, and I've said it many times before, I'm going to keep saying it. So however you take Genesis, and and, uh, the, the, the picture language that is there is very clear and is incredibly captivating. The picture is of God making and giving to the humans that he has made a perfect existence. Perfect, not simply because of a perfect world and a perfect Garden of Eden that has now become a sort of watchword for wouldn't it be lovely to go back to Eden. Perfect primarily in the way that this story is put across in their relationship with God. God walks in the garden with them. They have this wonderful face-to-face, in fact, nakedness before God that is completely unashamed. Naked in body and mind and heart. There is that sense of just completely wide open to God. No shame no hindrance, friends of their creator. That's how we're meant to be. That's what we're made for. That is the essence of being fully human in relationship with our loving Heavenly Father who's made us and loves us. And then what you see is them not, and this is the crucial thing, not simply breaking an arbitrary rule that God then has to punish. Now, isn't that the way that we generally think of sin? We think of sins as being a list of things that God has said we shouldn't do. We do them, and then, bang, God gets us with a punishment. That is the way that, in general, people think of sins. Therefore, people think of wrath as being simply God's anger that we've broken, you know, nine of his ten commandments. Actually, that's not the way it works at all in Genesis 1 to 4, and it's not the way it works in the rest of the Bible. The point about them taking of the fruit of the tree is that what they are doing is saying to God, get lost. That's what they're saying. The heart of sin is that, the best way of remembering it, is that sin is a little word with I in the middle of it. It's the word that describes a world, a life that is lived with me, I, at the center of it. The picture language of Genesis says that Adam and Eve basically went, I and what I want and what I think is more important than what God wants. 
The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And what's the problem of the human heart? It has me rather than God at the center of it. And so God has to do something dramatic. God has to do something for their sake because the consequences of them turning their backs on him are disastrous. I don't know whether you've ever, sadly, like me, had the unfortunate, um, been the unfortunate victim of your own stupidity and put the wrong petrol or diesel in your tank. Um, and depending, I can never remember which way around it is, but if you've got a petrol car and you put diesel in, or you put diesel car and you put petrol in, one of those is pretty near fatal to your car if you keep on driving on it. The other one is just not terribly health, healthy. And it'll drive for a little bit, but while you're driving, you are doing your engine untold damage. And if you keep going for long enough, not only do you have to have your petrol tank um, sort of siphoned out, but the whole engine might end up needing taken apart and redone. It causes real damage. You run this engine on what it's not designed for, and it actually doesn't matter whether you thought it was a good idea or not. I thought it was a tremendously good idea when I put petrol in our new diesel car many years ago. I thought I was doing exactly the right thing. I went in and paid for it and thought, great, I filled the car up. I was wrong. Adam and Eve thought they were doing precisely the right thing. They'd feel more free. They'd feel more um, sort of fulfilled. But actually, they were going to have a disastrous and fatal effect on their lives because they weren't made to live that way. They were designed to have this perfect relationship with God. And they were saying to God, you could put it very rudely, but let's put it politely, uh, we're not interested in you. Off you go. So when when you read Genesis 3, um, there on page 5, there is this incredibly sad moment. Verse 8 of chapter 3. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid from God. Now, of course, you can't hide from God. I mean, that's the, one of the deliberate ridiculousnesses of this, the passage. But the point is, they didn't want to know God anymore. And now they were afraid of God. Now they were turning their backs on God. And God could do one of two things. He could let them continue in that Garden of Eden, never realizing what they had done, never realizing their need for him, and therefore simply die as a result. Or he could give them their heart's desire. He could give them aloneness. He could say to them, you want me to go? I'm going. Or at least, you don't want to be with me anymore? Off you go. The essence of what the Bible calls God's wrath against sin is simply this. He gives us our heart's desire. Our hearts say, I want me to be at the heart of the universe. And God says... Okay. Why does he do that? Because he loves us. It's what the father does in the story of the prodigal son. The younger son says, give me my share of the money. And the father goes, okay. Because he knows that it's the only possible way the son will learn the folly of his actions. It's the only possible way that the son will realize that life without his father it is, a, is a disaster. That's the only possible way that that separation, if you like, can be made real, is to say, okay. The essence of sin is me at the center of the universe, telling God I'm not interested in him. The essence of God's wrath is to say, you have what you want. This is what he does at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. 
Yes, there are these individual curses on the serpent, on Adam, on Eve, if you like, that cash out what this separation from God will look like. But do you notice God doesn't smite them? I don't know why human beings have this love of sort of smiting language. You know, the wrath of God, you imagine a finger and a lightning bolt. Kapow. If ever there were a moment in the Bible for God to smite, surely it's Genesis 3. What does God do? Have you seen what he does? Verse 21 of chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. There's no smiting there at all. What's God doing? He's caring for them. He's loving them. That's the point. God's wrath isn't the opposite of God's love. God's wrath is the outworking of God's love to make sure we don't just remain in the mess that sin does. If God never turned his back on us, we would never know the mess that we've made on our lives. If God had never turned his back on Adam and Eve, they would have simply carried on without him and then reaped the fatal rewards. The heart of what sin means is that I turn my back on God and God allows me to walk away. And the consequence of that in the end, is ultimately separation from the very one who makes human life human, from the very one who loved me and made me. And now we begin to tiptoe towards the heart of Gethsemane and the heart of the cross. You see, thousands of men had died on crosses. None of them had gone through what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. Tens of thousands of men and women have died the death of martyrs, knowing precisely the sort of thing they're going to go through. And yet they've not gone through what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. Why not? Because what Jesus began to taste in Gethsemane was the experience for the first time in his life of coming to God and finding the door slammed in his face. Go back with me to Matthew 26. Here, we'll finish. Page 997, 997. Twice, Jesus talks about this cup. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if this is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Verse 42, he went a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Back in Ezekiel 23, Isaiah 54, plenty of other places in the Old Testament, the cup is picture language for the wrath of God. See, what Jesus is about to experience and what he begins to to sip at that moment is the wrath of God. Because to die for us, to stand in our place, is not some simple sort of legal arrangement, oh, don't worry, I'll pay their fine. He dives in like a rescuer into a a raging sea. He dives into the middle of that which we would have to fully accept ourselves. He drains this cup of what it means to be separated from God. And what happens when he's on the cross? Do you remember what he cries? It suddenly begins to make sense. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus was horrified by, what Jesus was terrified by, what Jesus was, was, in the right sense of the word, mortified by, was beginning to taste what it meant for the first and only time in his life to come to God and find God's back. 
turned on him. Our sin on his shoulders. Our experience of God's back turned to us. Instead, taken by him. And you know, at the very moment when he's beginning to fully contemplate, fully experience what he's about to go through, you know what happens? The only time in his life he asked the disciples to do something for him, in that personal, emotional sense, they let him down. The very moment when he has to choose, is he going to do this for the likes of you and me? It's even more made clear to him that this is all grace. It's not even that he can think, well, I'm doing it for my friends, the disciples, and they've supported me through my suffering. They've been with me. I'm going to do it for them. No, right that moment, they turned their backs on him. The very moment when he needed a bit of reassurance, this was worth it. The nature of human sin, that incredible selfishness we all have, was writ large before him. It's grace. God enters into, in Jesus, the heart of of all that we heap on our own shoulders by saying to God, you're not not interested, I'm going to live life myself. And at the very moment when even his friends deserted him, Jesus chose, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to experience this. We're going to come to communion in a few minutes' time. And as we listen to Jesus' words of his body broken and his blood poured out, here's the point. It's not simply about a physical death died on a terrible instrument of torture. It is that. But thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people have died for the sake of others or have died for a cause. The point was that none of them had to go through the sheer hell of being utterly separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that you and I never have to.